Come on. Yeah, man, let's make magic. Yeah. I'm in the traveling Welcome to the family. Welcome to Deep Dive, where we explore how craft and story come together in an exceptional piece of filmmaking. My name is Sarah Shackett, Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire, and for this edition of Deep Dive, we're joining the traveling symphony of HBO Max's Station Eleven, with creator Patrick Somerville, actor Mackenzie Davis, and 10 other members of the show's cast and crew to take a closer look at episode 10, the series finale, Unbroken Circle. In the finale, we had, there were so many very powerfully emotional moments. The concern is landing those moments. This is fucking crazy that we're putting all of our mains up on stage in our finale, and that's going to hold the water of all their character stories. It was just so exciting because it was the convergence, both spatially and in real time, of all the stories together. You better be playful and you better have fun. I think people should watch Station Eleven because it's really fun. It's, it's just, it has surprising moments. The first nine episodes of Station Eleven do have a lot of fun, surprising moments for a show about the 20 years following a deadly global pandemic. In each episode, we learn a new piece of backstory about the ensemble of characters, two brothers who take in an eight-year-old as the pandemic rips through Chicago, a group of survivors in Michigan who transform a remote airport into a community, the writer of a comic book about a space station. And one of the joys of the show is that with each new piece of backstory, we discover how these seemingly disparate threads are connected to each other. But then in the finale, everyone's come together in the present as a Shakespearean theater troupe, the Traveling Symphony, arrives at the airport with a man who has a vision for a very different way that post-pandemic life can be. Is each character gonna get enough space to be what they are? at the end, because we really had to slip a lot of things in, in this very quick hopping way. And can we do it under 60 minutes too? Because that seemed fucking impossible. The challenge of concluding a series certainly keeps every showrunner up at night. And as Somerville just alluded to, the question of whether or not his team could effectively bring everyone together and do justice to the characters' nuanced emotional journeys was for a long time an open one. Somerville told us that at one point the edit of episode 10 was longer than most feature films. Yet, the success of Unbroken Circle isn't just in how it cracks the mechanics of bringing the storylines together successfully. The show's success is in its remarkable ability to deliver complex emotional resolutions out of beautifully simple moments of connection, like this one from the very last scene of the show. You know, raising kids is hard, you know? It's like a yo-yo. You love them, but you get angry. You scare them, they run away. I was never scared with you. No, I was always scared. And I met this girl. She said I'd walk her home. Our question for this podcast is pretty simple. How? How did the Station Eleven team pull this off? How did they organize an episode of television which has to do so much and deliver with such startling emotional clarity? What were the choices that they made to get us there? Let's take a deep dive. It's an even year. What comedy are you doing? Hamlet! Episode 10 and the entirety of Station Eleven is held together by character stories that are interwoven through time. But even more than that, 
It's held together by ideas found at the heart of Emily St. John Mandel's novel. Here's Somerville, writer on the show Sarah McCarran, and actor Mackenzie Davis. We're feeling our way through a story that is too big to be told in 10 hours. So you need to make some very specific choices about which roads you go down. I also had this very strange intuition that it was about the internet. We always have had the internet. It just used to be called art. But I think having to go somewhere and be together to see a thing is different than what we do now. And I think having to go somewhere and be together is what breaks siloed realities and makes people be living in the same world. And so like theater, special pieces of art that weren't recreatable, that stuff is actually baked into the health of our culture and our society. And I think it keeps us from going crazy. Should we even put theater in this show? How do you do it in a way that feels accessible? And is that going to alienate people or become super esoteric or bizarre? I pretty strongly put a flag in the in the ground that we 1000% have to. It's the vocabulary of the show. Every electrical grid is gone. Every food resource, every comfort is gone. It's such an unpleasant way to live. It's hard to really conceive of how terrible it would be. They must get so much out of performing and out of text and out of that expression and community that is built in each town and of a thing for them, but also a service that they're offering. We're the Traveling Symphony. We travel for a reason. You burn the house down, then you go. Just try to make the world make sense for a minute. If the premise of the show was about this group that had kept each other safe by being together, by performing, by making art, but also just by having a community that looked out for each other the way that the Traveling Symphony does, if that was all what the kind of premise was, it had to pay off in a real way, not just for the small audience gathered around watching in the airport, but for our audience. We had to prove it, that art helps you heal or surprises us with excitement that a teenager can go wide-eyed at an amazing costume. We had to show it. We had to do it for the show to be the show. Here's director Jeremy Padezwa and cinematographer Steve Cousins. I wanted the show to have a kind of magic. The conductor says, you know, make magic every time. They all say, make magic every time. And it needs to be magical. It needs to feel like something that people would be excited to see when it came to town. And so there is much thought into the theatricality of it and the stagecraft. It's this like post-pandemic world. You can't do normal theatrical lighting, but it's a gift in a way because you have to use what's available. You really find the simplest, most elegant way of doing it. When we talked about the Shakespeare sequences in Station Eleven, from the beginning, I really wanted to shoot them all with natural flame. Ruth and I, we spent a lot of time just working out where all the flame sources would be and where the gas lines would be plumbed. And, you know, I was able to control all the flames and, you know, dim some out and bring some up and kind of sculpt the light on the stage. Cousins sculpts the flames to heighten the drama on the stage. It also brings this communal intimacy to the scenes, creating the feeling that the audience and the actors are all gathered together around a bonfire on a summer night. It's also here that the close collaboration between the show's cinematography, production design, and costume is evident, as each department works to showcase the creative spirit and ingenuity of the traveling symphony. Here is costume designer Helen Juan, followed by production designer Ruth Ammon and actor Mackenzie Davis. 
if we're going to go and, and interpret Shakespeare, people have seen that traditional theater, like Eurocentric costumes. It's a very narrow view of the world that 15th century England is like the template for each gender. We looked at a lot of masquerades and costumes from all over the world to see how people reinterpret things. I really wanted the traveling symphony to look not like a post-apocalyptic, you know, they're starving, there's no water, they're in a desert, wearing all gray. I just felt like a script was so lively and so full of hope. I wanted them to look organic and utilizing the things around them. And obviously our world is colorful. And so if they're using the remnants of this world, they are colorful and to use graphics because I really wanted the clothes to feel like a time capsule into things that we've lost. Helen come up with so many great, incredibly grand costumes that I felt that it wasn't important to overdo the stages, but rather keep them simple. A lot of the stage was built from truck parts because the idea of traveling tied in with our traveling symphony. When we finally got to do the theater scenes, it was so wonderful to get to see the costumes all together and these sort of like Polly Pocket-esque caravans that opened into full theatrical sets and drapes. You see how that could feed people when you get to see it all together. They're fed by the making of the thing. It really felt like it justified this thesis that they would choose this life. Amon told us that there was this incredible conscious awareness of the ways in which the show had to become the traveling symphony, that it had to work together to figure out how this group of performers would capture the magic every time. Cousins, Juan, and Amon's work draws us, the audience watching the series at home, into these Shakespeare sequences, not just what's going on in them, but the intimate handcrafted nature of them. However, the theater sequences also needed to be integrated with the story of Station Eleven by finding ways to reflect the characters' conflicts. In the case of the finale, the question was, could a performance of Hamlet, of all things, resolve a familial conflict that we are braced to see end in violence as the rage inside spurned son slash prophet Tyler threatens to tear down the airport community he ran away from as a child? I thought my son burned himself alive in front of me. I have no idea who my son even is. He won't even speak to me. He just, he just stares back at me like I'm a ghost. You're Gertrude. Sorry, you should play Gertrude. Patrick, quite brilliantly, found a way to weave in the story of the characters in Station Eleven into Hamlet. You can't play Gertrude and Tyler can't play fucking Hamlet because it isn't fucking art therapy. It is civilization. It's the only way he'll talk to me, Clark. Here's the show's Shakespeare consultant, theater director Chris Abraham, along with showrunner Patrick Somerville and director Jeremy Pedeswa. Ultimately, there's no way that they could really properly tell the story of Hamlet. So what the audience is invited to do is to follow what's going on with all of the named characters. It was a big idea. I didn't know if it was going to work until the day, actually, that we shot the Gertrude scene. Have you forgot me? No, by the root, not so. You are the queen. Your husband's brother's wife. And would it were not so, you are my mother. I'm directing Hamlet, but I'm also directing the actors in this psychodrama that they're performing of their own lives. 
They all know it. This is what's so brilliant about it is the characters who are playing Hamlet know as they're playing it that they are also living through things that are really germane to their existence. Oh, I think when they play it, it's more affecting than they expect it even to be. Shakespeare's words become a vehicle for them to talk to each other in a way that they have not been able to talk to each other prior to this. And it's actually not in the book either. <laughs> That's a complete Patrick invention. These but the trappings and the suits of woe. I loved him too, Tyler. Here again is the show's Shakespeare consultant, theater director, Chris Abraham. One of the huge accomplishments of the show is that it manages to really invite the audience into a community of people from various vantage points and then bring them together in the final act in the climactic scene in a kind of galvanizing moment which shapes the meaning of the whole experience of the story. And that is what Shakespeare does. The conspicuous return in a single location of all characters that have been shattered across time and geography to a kind of improbable but totally persuasive conclusion, that's what the show does. There's this conspicuous coincidence that you have to overcome in your storytelling that has to feel cosmically right. And it's really, really hard to do and really, really hard to do credibly. And the show does that. Were you happier after? getting all the, the melodrama, right, of Shakespearean tragic emotions playing out. Then he just gets to say, Mom, come. They've earned that simplicity through this high formal Shakespeare scene. What the writer of episode eight, Sarah McCarran, just said there bears emphasis. That scene between Elizabeth and Tyler embodies so much of what Unbroken Circle is doing. For all its complexity of story within theater, for all its plotline and timeline switch-up shenanigans, the emotional payoffs consistently come out of just two people talking to each other. What you see with each moment of emotional resolve in the episode is how the show slowly transforms enormously complex interpersonal conflicts into simple moments of honesty. It becomes what you just heard. That whole exchange between the two characters is only 57 words. It's so direct that in another series or in another context, it might be too on the nose. But the journey that Station Eleven takes us on is one that helps us to understand how affected these characters are by the art that they're experiencing and how that leads them to an emotionally honest place. It is a carefully calibrated journey, one in which timing and feeling are everything. And in part, Station Eleven was able to feel its way through its timeline shifts and emotional crescendos via an unusual post-production process. Rather than siloing editors with specific episodes, the series intentionally merged editing responsibilities among the entire team. Everyone, from the most junior assistants to senior editors David Eisenberg and Anna Hauger, knew the whole show, inside and out. The entire team contributed to putting the finale together in order to help merge material into it from throughout the series. Here's editor David Eisenberg and showrunner Patrick Somerville. 
our process was maybe a little different than normal. The way it's always been done is each editor has their own episode. And it's good because you can just really kind of dive in on that one. But it would help if we all knew all the stuff more intimately. So we are all involved in cutting the dailies together. We are all involved in shaping the episodes together. I took kind of like a global look at everything to make sure we were all headed in the right direction. But it was truly, truly a team effort. And the finale needed this because of all the storylines that needed to come together and make sense at the end of the day. You can get to a situation like that in TV sometimes. It's doable, but you don't have enough people who are deep into it enough having ideas to get it done. The great thing about the system is it kind of like everyone was ready by the time we were editing the hardest episode to edit. Episode 10 is a great kind of example of how that system paid off because it made all the editors know the language of the show equally. And we were all in the same place about our understanding of what the show was. But it's so delicate because the whole thing's a tinderbox. This is really where it kind of has to start to pay off. This linchpin text, Station Eleven, Miranda, Arthur, the relevance of Station Eleven, which is holding together all the relationships that are informing Tyler's psyche and Kirsten's psyche bear fruit. I find that action scenes are often easier to cut because they're very designed. Most often it's done in little spurts. So the clips you're working with are very short and it's usually just like one move, one punch, one kick, whatever it is. I've always found it's kind of easier to map those together Whereas the harder thing for me is a five, eight, ten page dialogue scene with two characters sitting in a room to build in those pauses, to build in those reactions and sustain and not make it boring is a real challenge. The ultimate editing challenge happens in episode 10 in a five page back and forth of really just two people talking. It starts with Miranda Carroll the creator of the Station Eleven comic book, who spends her last hours before succumbing to the flu, trying to get in touch with the pilot of a plane full of infected people that's landed but not yet disembarked at the Severn City Airport, where Clark, Elizabeth, and young Tyler all are. And against all odds, she does. And he picks up, and she tries to convince him to not let his passengers out of the plane. I need you to go against every single instinct you have and let the dead be gone. But then something else starts to happen. Something else starts to get woven into this conversation between two people who know that they're about to die. The astronaut from Miranda's comic book, Dr. Eleven, arrives and somehow he guides her up to the actual station in outer space, or close enough. Here's showrunner Patrick Somerville. For Miranda, I love the idea that she gets this two-week time before the world ends to look around and be like, it costs a lot to make art. It was worth it. It's what I wanted to do. But now uh, I'm going to be a member of a community. I'm going to do whatever I can to help. The people in the airport. They're on the countertop. That's right. They're all up on the countertop now. Here's director Jeremy Pedeswa. At the end of the episode, when Miranda enters the comic book in a way, Dr. Eleven comes to her hotel room and she follows him into her creation. The spaceship is her world that she created, and then she goes home, effectively. But the home was the home that she created in her art. It's all these beautiful layers of of meaning, I think. The editing helps us to see all of these layers at once. And then the show does something clever. It connects... Miranda's fate, what her life means, 
with the fate of the people at the airport. When we leave Miranda, we see Miles and Clark in year zero, in footage from episode five, actually. But then we also see them in the same spot in year 20, brief flashes of one inside the other. And that interplay between them closes a loop for those characters. The editing juxtaposes where they've started and where they've ended up in a way that makes them feel complete. It's a complex organizing of information, but ultimately it's a very simple conversation between these two men. They're all heroes on board that plane. Every single one of them. Those people saved us. So did you. All those big speeches at the perfect time. I was fucking good at big speeches, wasn't I? Big on me. Here's editor David Eisenberg. I so wish I could take credit for that scene, but I cannot because my dear friend Anna Hauger, that was all her. She did that so smoothly. I'm convinced that a lot of people don't even realize that we switch timelines because it's so smooth and so incredibly artfully done. I just was like so happy that I had, you know, brought her along onto this show to be able to bring something like that to the table. But, you know, we were, had the gift of Danielle Deadweiler. We had heard stories about those days where everyone was crying on set, just watching her performance. She is incredibly powerful in everything that she does. And we knew that was the baseline. Getting that scene right, just in terms of, you know, the balance of when to be on her, which was most of the time, but to be able to cut to the captain and then just getting the other pieces around it. But using her performance as the baseline, which we were very confident in knowing, like, okay, okay, that's that part is great. We know that's there. But linking it back to the present day was always a challenge because we don't want the audience to be confused. And that was sort of the brilliance of like what Anna did is she took a situation that could have been very confusing when you're dealing with all those timelines and kind of incepted the audience into understanding where they were. If you make a show called Station Eleven, the first days of the writer's room, you're all talking like, are we going into a space station? So we always wanted to do that, but I think the idea of containing it to that moment felt dramatically right, but it also felt like it was the proper demonstration of the show's spirituality, which is like, it matters very much what we imagine in our lives because that's the place I think we're going to get to. Part of what allows the series to go to that transcendent spiritual place created out of art is the power of the show's score by composer Dan Romer. I think that my favorite theme in the score is Miranda's theme slash the Station Eleven theme that kind of unlocked the score for us. And it's also not a melody that I would just randomly write sitting at a piano. It was like a very specific thing where I was watching Miranda and listening to her words and trying to kind of play along with the way that she was speaking. Have you got family, Kip? did you leave?
all, folks. Looks like it's going to be a little longer. It's not within one scale. It's got some notes outside of the scale. And that melody just has some movement in it that's not very common for me. I feel like there's so many fun things to do with that melody and that chord progression that just became such a source of, of different emotions I could pull out of it. Here is showrunner Patrick Somerville and editor David Eisenberg. Dan was always sort of this other radical element out there that was always present. Dan's, you know, a genius. He's working on the things before they even exist and somehow already knows what they should feel and sound like. Dan and I are friends. Dan lives down the street. A lot of nights in the fall after I put my kids to bed at nine o'clock, I walked over to his house and we sat for a few hours looking at what he had done and talking about how to make the emotional experience be the thing we needed it to be. Hey Dan, I just thought of this in the shower. I'm in Canada. I'm coming home tomorrow. The music just got so much better when I could get Patrick in the room with me and we could sit down and really go through every cue as opposed to just saying like, here's the music, give me notes. Just the two of us sitting down and just going through. I just love working with him so much and just think he adds so much. After I would deliver my first round of an episode, I would always call him and say, Patrick, come over. Let's just, you know, jam on, on some of these cues and see where they go. In a little bit of art imitating life, Station Eleven had more time to jam than they thought they would. The show began production in January of 2020 with no idea that a global pandemic would halt the production in March. The series resumed shooting a now slightly less sci-fi show in February of 2021 in Canada. But in that pandemic downtime, when we were all stuck inside, the Station Eleven team had time to do something that a lot of us weren't able to. They could imagine their version of the future. During our downtime, you know, waiting to start up again, both Helen Huang and I and Patrick and Jeremy, we were all in contact with each other. So we got to sit down and really have this moment that you rarely get in this business, in my position, where there's no timeline. You don't have a deadline. You can just free think and dream as big as you want. It was actually an opportunity really to dig into what was year 20 going to be? What was the world going to look like? We would Zoom once a week and just kind of blow each other's minds with ideas that we hadn't thought about. We literally built the airport in a 3D space. We used Unreal Engine. Ruth took us on a tour. It was all there. We got to do exactly what we imagined. Once the show was back up and shooting, the creative team couldn't help but be influenced and, in a lot of cases, inspired by the strange production circumstances. Like a lot of productions, we were right in the middle of COVID, so it was, you know, difficult shooting and challenging, but we all knew that we were making something really beautiful at the same time. Everyone was trying to decide how to make a show safely, and so they did decide to take us from Chicago, because we were originally supposed to go back to Chicago, to Canada. But the thing with Canada is that they did have a low infection rate, but nothing was open. Like, there were literally, like, no stores. It was really life imitating art, where the only places that we were allowed to were these, like, giant warehouses with, like, these barrels of clothes. It was just about sort of figuring out what we have at hand and then sort of taking it into costumes, which I think is kind of what they would think about. All of us, I think, felt that we were, you know, living the life of the traveling symphony. We all were artists. We're all creators. We're all working together to put on a show. Nothing could be more in sync than that. It was definitely 
very, very emotional and lonely at times, but you, it didn't matter in a way because I felt like I was part of the traveling symphony. So I, it gave me a purpose every day to create something. And I don't know, it was just a really unique situation. All of the creation that this team put together comes to a head in the show's final emotional resolution and in how Station Eleven ends. Back in episode nine, after keeping an orphaned nine-year-old Kirsten alive for the first year of the pandemic, Jeevan is attacked by a wolf in the woods, separating our two lead characters for two decades. Both of them are left wondering the fate of the other and filled with guilt. And then in the finale, after a couple near misses, they come together. Kirsten spots Jeevan at the play's after party. We watch the real time it takes for the two of them to recognize each other and embrace. Then there's a break, and the next time we see the two of them together, they're walking away from the airport, going in different directions. Here's showrunner Patrick Somerville. It's my favorite scene in the show. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that it's just simple. There wasn't a flash you had to do to catch anyone up. It's just two people who we know really well. We finally got to the place where two people would get, I think, what they had been looking to get all along, which is a chance to say goodbye. It always felt like a big element of the show was going to be about the unfairness of a global catastrophe, the suddenness of it that meant that you couldn't do the things you were supposed to do. Station Eleven could have easily overexplained or overloaded the lead up to this moment. And it was really the performers who helped to get it right. Here's Himesh Patel and Mackenzie Davis, along with editor David Eisenberg and director Jeremy Patezwa. Originally, there was dialogue, I believe, during that embrace, just like a line each. Myself and Mackenzie felt that it wasn't necessary. We could do away with that and just have an embrace. And then, you know, if something came out afterwards, then we'd just add it. And then that final scene where they're walking along the trail, me and Mackenzie sort of worked on it a little bit. We, we ran the scene just between us and sort of found that it was all about the playing of it, really. There wasn't anything we wanted to change about the dialogue. It was perfect as it was, but it was in the playing of it, the awkward moments, the sort of leaning into the fact that it had been 20 years since they'd seen each other, and that despite that being such a euphoric thing, it's also a bit odd. There are also going to be moments of not knowing quite what to say to each other, almost having so many questions that it's overwhelming. Nothing could convey the enormity of this moment better than silence and space. And for both the the first seeing each other and for the reunion, it's too big to really put words around. It's too big to talk about that or to get answers. And maybe they never, ever talk about it. But that's one of like 60 enormous sort of revelations and realizations and feelings that are undergirding that first reunion and the scene that follows. I think we were just both like, let's do as little as possible and let it be as awkward as it is. It's not the flashiest scene in the episode, but it's honestly my favorite as I look back. Those two just walking in the woods was a joy to watch and a joy to put together. You know, it felt like we had earned where we had gotten. As an editor, in some ways, you're just trying to get out of the way and not be too precious and not be too picky and not be too cutty and let them kind of just do their thing. An example of that is the hug. They did so good with the hug. It was really just about balance, making sure that they each got enough on either side of them. And how can we just milk this as much as possible to get as much tears out of the audience as possible? 
because I know I'm crying when I see it. That scene is servicing a lot. I wanted to shoot it very simply. I just want to follow them from behind. I want to follow them from the front. I want to do a raking two shots, which are very connected, and discreetly travel with them. The symphony's far ahead. It's like they're completely alone, even though they're, they're not. It can have a kind of intimacy about it. And then when they land, they land in this perfect place at this fork in the road. I don't really reveal the fork until the end. That's the last big moment when they go off on their separate ways. There was no score at the time. It was just them. But it was like there was a score in my head already. And I, <laughs> I, could, I could feel that this is the end of the show. Like, this is it. It's so satisfying to see them together. But it's also beautiful that they can now separate again. The success of Station Eleven is simple, clear, emotional moments that live with a naturalistic beauty in their composition and also a kind of poetry to them as well. Because like a good poem, or a good comic book for that matter, these simple scenes evoke bigger ideas and they invite us as the viewers to fill in the larger, unspeakable, maybe unshowable emotional importance of connecting to other people. Just because something is simple does not mean that it is easy. It takes a lot of care and layering and restraint for that final moment of the show to pay off. But to be fair, Station Eleven also maybe had a little luck from the universe on its side. That end shot where, you know, they literally come to a fork in the road and, and disappear. It's hard to find. It's hard to find a nice location like that. And we went to a lot of different places because we were like, OK, well, this has got to be something. It's the last shot of the film. We almost settled on one other place, but then we kept looking and we came across this place. And weirdly, that road was in a park and each road that went off in this park had a different station number. So there was station eight, station seven, and the arm that went off in that direction was station 11, believe it or not. It's the craziest thing. Sometimes life is just nuts. There was a post with a little sign on it that said Station 11. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess this is where we have to be. This is more than a sign from the universe. The funny thing was there was a Station 13 and a Station 6 that were in the running too. Station 11, it was the best one. That's what's nuts to me. It's not that really something was called Station 11. It was literally the best place because it got us that fork exactly like we needed it. It was just kismet. I w- I'll put the airport on the wheel. Bring your family next year. They, they know all about you. Frank and Key and Audie. I tell them the story. Goodbye, Kirsten. Bye. You've been listening to Deep Dive, a special edition of IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. Today's episode was produced by Chris O'Fault and Sarah Shackett and narrated by Sarah Shackett. Editing and sound design by Zach Valenti with additional editorial support from Eric Adams and Parparik. Toolkit will be back next week with a conversation about Our Flag Means Death with David Jenkins and Taika Waititi. We'll see you then, and thanks for listening.